up everyone welcome back to den of geek presents marvel standom where each week we give you the latest the greatest on all the goings on in the world of marvel movies marvel tv marvel comics and even marvel games every now and then now that marvel snap is a thing but anyway <laughs> i am once again your host mike Chikini, and with me for all time and always please say hello to den of geek tv editor alec bajalin den of geek news and features editor kirsten howard and welcome, our special guest, the co-host of X-Ray Vision, writer for Denna Geek and plenty of other outlets, the brilliant Rosie Knight. How's everybody doing? Happy to be here. Love the ant size intro. Genuinely unnerved by the ant size intro. <laughs> We're all subatomic size. I, I love the fact that I didn't know that was coming, that our producer, Andrew, just went ahead and did that. And like for a second, I also panicked, thinking that something was very wrong. Uh, I hope our viewers watching live <laughs> are smarter than me and got the joke right out of the gate. So <laughs> there's Andrew. Uh, also, folks, uh, let's give a warm welcome back to Lee Parham, who is once again moderating the comments today Woo! folks behave yourselves and be extra nice to lee please he's got to put up with me every day during the week so be nice to him kirsty it's been a while since we've had to do a proper uh a proper kirsty recap why don't we kick this over to you yeah and writing this one was a real headache <laughs> <laughs> but i think i managed it so let's do it in Marvel's Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, the Ant Fam is living well, with Scott and Hope happy and an older version of his daughter Cassie Lang in the fold. Cassie has become a super smart but rebellious teen, an activist who thinks that Scott isn't being the kind of superhero that he could be. After Cassie reveals that she's invented a device that will help the Ant Fam contact the Quantum Realm should any of them get stuck there again, Janet suddenly freaks out and tells her to turn it off but it's too late. The squad is sucked into the quantum realm and they slowly hear Janet's tale of being previously stranded there with Kang. Apparently, at first their relationship was pretty good, uh, but Janet saw a vision of Kang's true nature that he would kill trillions in his quest for multiversal dominance. So she reacted on this vision and in engineered the situation so that he got stuck in the quantum realm. Now he rules it with an iron fist, quashing rebellions. Also, Modok. He kidnaps Cassie and Scott and tries to make a deal. Cassie's life for Scott reacquiring his power core so he can escape the quantum realm finally. Scott agrees, but Kang betrays him. And it's up to Hank and his hyper-evolved army of ants, Deus Ant Machina, to save the day. Scott is nearly killed in the final battle against Kang, but Hope helps him destroy Kang's power core and he's pulled into oblivion. The pair return home through a portal, but Scott is left with the nagging feeling that he may not have ultimately saved the day after all. 
In the first of two post-credit scenes, we see a council of Kangs convened to address our Earth's burgeoning interest in the multiverse. In the second, we catch up with Loki and Mobius in the 1900s, where they watch a Kang variant called Victor Timely perform on stage, with Mobius finding the whole thing delightful and Loki clearly terrified. Yeah, that, that, is, that is a headache. Uh, so <laughs> uh, last week, Alec and I talked uh, briefly about, you know, some spoiler-free and positive feelings on Quantumania, but we have... Two folks who have not weighed in yet this week. Rosie, why don't we start with you? What did you think of Quantumania? I thought it was really fun. Like, I I was surprised to see the reaction that the kind of general critic consensus came to because I just thought it was really fun, sci-fi, wacky. It's not like up there in my top tier MCU movies, but I had a blast watching it. And I just think Jonathan Majors is unbelievable as Kang. And I'm also like a sucker for Kang. I have the three issues where they introduced the Council of Kang. Those were like dollar bin finds that we got in like Philly, I think. I've got yeah, most not of it dollar to- bin finds not anymore, anymore baby. <laughs> yeah, and I've got like I I love Victor Timely. I'd actually been that's like one of my niche weird character obsessions, like Bova. So I'd been talking about Victor Timely and how he wasn't going to be in the movie, and then that post credit scene was just joyous for me. I one of my favorite things about the movie was um, I thought the relationship between Janet and Kang and the Michelle Pfeiffer Jonathan Majors chemistry was like off the charts. I loved that. I've always wanted to see Janet get her due. She's a founding Avenger. She came up with the name Avengers in the comics, and that has obviously been sidelined for this kind of new iteration that we got. So it was kind of nice to see her in full focus. I can understand like some of the critiques people had and it, you know, it, it does feel very Rick and Morty-ish, but as me and Jason were talking about on the podcast, Rick and Morty is very heavily influenced by comic books and it's kind of this cyclical transactional thing. So like there's only a council of Ricks because there's a council of Kangs in the comics. So it's kind of more of a reflection of Rick and Morty's influences and then ending up in a place where a Rick and Morty writer writes it. Yeah. I, I wasn't a huge, uh, I love Modoc, so that was not the representation I dreamed of. But I just thought the whole thing was so much fun, and it was great to watch in a movie theater. I like weird sci-fi stuff. Like I, I loved Verb. I thought that was such a fun introductory, like weird character that kind of leaned into the the wackiness of that Rick and Morty writing, but brought it into a place that felt relevant in the MCU. So yeah, I just thought it was really fun. Kirsty, how about you? Because we've often uh, been at odds since phase four but <laughs> i like this one where are you at with quantum mania where i'm at is that if i put on my critic if i put my take my normal brain out and i put my critic brain in i don't think this movie is very good <laughs> i think it has narrative problems i think it has visual problems um however i enjoyed it I yeah. was entertained and really I got my money's worth. I laughed. I I thought the story was interesting. Um, it, it does have problems, um, but I did not really um, overly care about them. It's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. Like, it's not a great movie. Yeah. Like realistically <laughs> speaking, 
Like it's not it's it's not a particularly great movie, but it's very heavily edited. I, you can feel in like the yes. first act, mm-hmm. like there's yeah. a lot of changes. But like you said, it's it's entertaining. Like it's kind of that blockbuster, just fun. You can go and see it if you're a kid. You're going to enjoy it. If you're an adult, you're probably going to enjoy yeah. it. And and Jonathan's performance is to me is like a Adam Driver when they cast Adam Driver as Kylo Ren. This is really a performance that is like way out of the league of the franchise. And it, to me, just brought like a lot of heft and emotion and kind of gravitas to that wacky kind of weird. And also, like you said, like it helps you ignore some of the narrative stuff because when Jonathan's on screen, it's just, you're just captivated. Alec, are you still feeling positive about this? Or is this one of those things where the further away you get from it, the more you think about it, eh, you know. As you said, Mike, you and I have already gotten a chance to talk about this. So I might just phone in this episode like Bill Murray phones in his cameo. <laughs> Ooh, ouch. Like... <laughs> it's true, it's true. <laughs> um, yeah. But Bill Murray, uh, friendly fire aside, um, I'm glad you phrased the question that way, Mike, because I have really, I have been reconsidering it. Um, like I, I've read more about it. I, I've taken in some of the complaints and criticisms. And I do think I was a bit too enthusiastic uh, the first time I saw it. It is not quite as good a film as I remember. I mean, Rosie and Kirsty, you guys have it dead on. Like it's not fundamentally a sound film. It's just one that I happen to enjoy. Um, I think honestly, (laughs) it's hard for me to separate like the meta narrative around Ant-Man and like what it means for the MCU at large with the film itself like it's hard for me to like disengage from reacting to the reviews than to like reacting to the film itself uh i feel like the reviews are are far too hard on it but i also like in a vacuum away from those reviews i think it's a perfectly above average marvel film maybe um and you're right rosie like a lot of that comes down to one man mr kang I, I'm sure we're going to really delve into its guts here soon, but I still have a hard time thinking of it as anything other than like a headline on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> like that's what my mind is just like singularly grasped onto. Is this the right way to start phase five though? You know, like is like kicking off what is supposed supposed to be like a major, major MCU cycle with a movie this offbeat really the right way to go? I think that's like the biggest thing people are actually reacting to. This still very much feels in the tone of phase four, I think, which is not a complaint because I was actually, I think they did loads of cool stuff in phase four, but I think that's what a lot of people are reacting to. I think people kind of wanted it to feel very tonally different and they wanted to get a little bit, probably more of that grounded, that gravitas, that real world kind of connectivity that made the original you know first three phases of the mcu so successful and i think that the fact this feels a lot more like phase four probably didn't make people feel very excited if they hadn't loved phase four i think introducing kang is great and i think from the outset when they brought kang in as a villain when you read the comics you know that one of the best things about kang is you can kill him off every movie and there'll always be another kang But I think that for people who don't necessarily know the law or find that kind of storytelling interesting, that can lower the stakes. I also think it's a huge tone shift from the Ant-Man movies that people did love. So I also think that is like, can be a bit of a stumbling block. But I thought, I thought it's like, it's phase five, you know, not every, I know 
it's hard for people to remember this, but like not every MCU movie has always been great. Like even critically or, or what people felt in fandom and people feel like phase four had that at a higher level, but it's like people didn't like Thor Dark World. People didn't like uh, Iron Man 2, a movie that I think is actually really good. Sorry, haters. Um, but like, it's just one of those things where the good thing about the MCU is there's like 30 of these movies. So guess what? There's one that you can like, there's one you don't like. But I think Jonathan makes this a good entry. But I do think if it wasn't the first phase five movie, I think the result, I think the reviews and people's response would have actually been better. I agree, Rosie. I I think that um, if this mo- movie had come out in phase four, it wouldn't have got such the brunt of criticism that it did. It really was because it was hyped as the start of a new phase and perhaps because it didn't feel different or because it didn't have the substance. Like that people were like, oh, just more of this then? Instead of, you know, yay, more of this. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Definitely. You see what I mean? It's hard to like not talk about the meta narrative around it. <laughs> like it's, yeah. it almost just feels like a meta narrative more than a film. I don't really fully understand the delineation between phase four and phase five. You know, phase four was a lot of setup. And this movie is also a lot of setup. We just get like the proper villain for the first time and we get another member of the Young Avengers properly introduced, you know, with Cassie. So it does feel more like of a piece with phase four. And like, I don't know. And frankly, I don't care. I just want to be entertained and I want to see cool characters doing cool stuff. And that's what this movie does. Let's talk about Cassie though, because this is our third this is our third Cassie. Like we have a council yeah. of Cassies in terms of MCU <laughs> casting now. Um Catherine Newton from Freaky, right, is awesome. Um, and I kind of liked the, you know, I mean, this is about as radical as uh, a Disney character gets outside of Andor, you know what I mean? So like I I appreciated uh Cassie here, but what's everybody else's thoughts on Cassie and the ongoing build towards the young avengers i mean like hurry up because they have like every young avenger now and everyone's been like yo where are the young avengers and it's like um yeah i i like i any chance to have somebody in like a major blockbuster talking about how important it is to protest homeless sweeps i'm like i'm all for that i didn't necessarily feel like cassie or hope got like a lot to do in the movie um but that's also fine because all you really want to see is her blow up to a giant size and hug Scott and Scott say this is like hugging Godzilla. I mean, that's what you want out of an Ant-Man movie, you know? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm interested to see it. Like, I I always knew Cassie Moore's like stature and I think here they're, they're going for like Stinger, they were saying, though she seemed kind of stature-ish. Yeah, I, I just want the Young Avengers to come. So Cassie being here, I'm like, great. I, I, I do agree justice for the original... Uh, Cassie casting I like when they cast an unknown actor I think it kind of sucks when they recast them but I understand why you would want to cast a comedian like Catherine Newton against Paul Rudd for that kind of like chemistry with the two of them Uh, they also shot like all the pickups for this movie uh, for that final kind of Scott realization in the neighborhood where I live so I was like there on the day like seeing them I went to get my phone fixed and Paul Rudd was like getting a coffee from Ruben Ribasa and and they shot the restaurant scene in like a restaurant by my house so I'm happy that the Ant fam technically live in my neighborhood 
in LA, by the way, guys, not San Francisco. Sorry, movie magic. But yeah, I'd like to see more Cassie, but mostly hurry up with those young Avengers because we basically have the whole team now. I really couldn't agree more with the sentiment of hurry up. Um, like it's really, it feels like it's taking a while. Uh, I, I don't know. As a comic agnostic, I don't know much about the Young Avengers, but it seems to me that there's a real opportunity to just have younger Avengers um, for as pristine and beautiful as Paul Rudd still looks. <laughs> he is, you know, he's getting up there. Like, it's kind of, it's hard to imagine, um, you know, this iteration of Scott Lang lasting much longer. And I think maybe that's what took some people by surprise with this mm. movie, um, which I know walking in into the press screening, somebody mentioned like, <laughs> like, oh boy, get ready to cry in this one because they just assumed that Scott Lang would be killed or would end up in the quantum realm forever. And then therefore Cassie would take over. Uh, but a lot of these kind of older established Marvel characters have proven pretty resistant to, to being kicked out of the MCU, I think. Um, I do like Catherine Newton as Cassie. I just kind of wish that we had a better sense of going into the next Ant-Man story, whatever that is, if it's an Ant-Man film itself or a young-ish Avengers type thing. I wish we had a better sense that Cassie was in charge now. Sprainer1 wants to know in the comments if we have any predictions for whether the young Avengers will form in phase five or six. Um, personally, I don't know if they're actually going to formally form. I almost wonder if they're just going to keep introducing these characters and maybe pairing them up and like slowly teaming them up until they just are the Avengers. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if they're going to go like the full young Avengers brand name with this or not, or if these characters are just kind of being set up to be integrated into whatever new Avengers team forms as we head towards the Kang dynasty and secret wars. But that's just me. Um, if anybody has any better ideas, I'd love to hear. I think there's going to be multiple Avengers teams uh, by the time we get to Secret Wars and Kang Dynasty. Uh, I think the Thunderbolts will act as a kind of Avengers-ish team. Uh, I think we'll have a version of the Young Avengers, which I kind of wonder if they're also going to turn into their West Coast Avengers, because we know mm. that Kate might go to LA, and I think there's kind of a shape a world where we see some kind of combined, you know, Kate, She-Hulk, A-Force-ish, West Coast Avengers team. I think you're right, Mike. I think for a long time, all of us were hoping for like a, a Gillen and McKelvey, Matt Wilson-inspired Young Avengers, like movie or, because that book is just so brilliant. Like if you haven't read it, you can read it on Marvel Unlimited. You can buy a trade copy for like $30, I think, with all the issues. But I don't necessarily know if they're going to do like Young Avengers I think that we might just have multiple different teams and one of them is going to be Cassie, Kate, uh, you know, um, Isaiah Bradley's uh, nephew who we met in, um, you know, uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier, Elijah. I think that probably will get, we know we're going to probably get versions of Wanda's kids in uh, Agatha Coven of Chaos. So they'll probably be a part of that team. So we, re and I think that someone like Kamala, you know, who wasn't necessarily in the Young Avengers, but has been in like a Champions. I, I think there's going to be multiple different hero teams by the time we get to Secret Wars to kind of represent the different worlds or universes that we see. But I still stick with Hurry Up. I think a Young Avengers TV show or a Young Avengers movie is just too good not to do. But I, I'm starting to get the feeling that, like you said, I think they might just be another branch of the Avengers. I can get behind all that. I just want to see these characters. And, like, please get me those Gillen and McKelvey vibes. Like, 
we exactly. need Marvel Boy introduced like stat in order for that to like really come together. But now we're getting out in the weeds. Uh, but yes, I'm just backing Rosie up here. Do read that Young Avengers. It's run, so folks. good. It's really good. It's real. Like there's other Young Avengers comics and like, like I haven't read those, but I've read this one <laughs> and it's awesome. <laughs> like it really is that good. Let's talk a little bit about the real star of this show. And that's, uh, as Alec likes to call him, Johnny Majors. Uh, that's uh, trademark and copyright, Alec Bajalad. This, to me, is one of the best villain intros the MCU has ever done. Like, like even Thanos, and Thanos turned out to be just like an all-time great screen villain, period, right? Even Thanos didn't get this kind of introduction that Kang got in this film. And that, to me, is a strength. And that tells me that you know, there's a lot of potential going forward here because if they can build to what they did with Thanos with this character on a stronger foundation, we might be in for something special here. But where does everybody else fall on this one? What I liked about this uh, version of Kang was he did chew the scenery and ham it up and be villainous. Um, but how we were really introduced to him was through Janet's eyes and as kind of a sweet, thoughtful man that she, would, uh, you know, gravitated towards and understood to an extent. And they absolutely banged. So it yes. was 100%, like, 100%, 100%, 100%. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Janet was into him and was into his vibe. And then she saw a version of him that, you know, absolutely sucked. And was like, well, I'm going to have to do something about this. But but I liked that they introduced him as somebody who can be sweet and thoughtful and affecting and, you know, somebody that, that they might on another day get along with just fine in, in a certain situation. But And not just a two-dimensional version of Kang, which is what I was expecting from the trailers, honestly. Yeah, I think that's really key to how Kang can be different to Thanos is like, and why I think Kang can be such an affecting villain because those sides that we see in this movie, those can also be different versions of Kang. Mm. You know, we're likely going to see a Nathaniel Richards, like original version of the scientist before who might be an ally. Or we might see a version of Immortus who has grown weary and wants to ally with the Avengers. There is like a lot of different versions of Kang. And I think in this one performance as Kang the Conqueror, Jonathan did a brilliant audition for all of them, where it's like you meet the scientist who crash landed. You meet the man who's empathetic and incredibly smart and desperately lonely. When he talks, when he monologues to Janet and he sort of tells her like, you have no idea what I've lost. You want to know, like, what did he lose? What made him so angry? Like, I just thought it was so much fun. And I thought they did a good job balancing that with his just need to conquer. Like when she's like, what are you going to do when you get out of here? And he's like, win. I was just like, that's so fun. Like, let him be both. And Jonathan's so great at it. I just, yeah, I thought he was just absolutely splendid. And I loved the relationship between him and Janet. I actually think it's like absolute nonsense that they tried to tell us that Michelle Pfeiffer would have slept with Krylar and not Kang. When the, like, one, he's a snitch. Two, like, Michelle Pfeiffer is one of the most beautiful women in the world. And three, the chemistry between her and Jonathan Majors is undeniable. Like, mm. I am a Janet Kang shipper. Uh, <laughs> I, I've been thinking about a lot about why this movie didn't necessarily, like, click with people. And I do think one thing I would have liked to see is 
I think that when it comes to Kang, a lot of people are like, why didn't she tell him? And I just think a really simple thing that they could have done is like, if Janet told anyone about Kang or mentioned his name, he then becomes a possibility in that universe. So you can just never mention it. You know, I feel like there might have been something like that that got edited out. I feel like if there'd been a, a little bit more of an explanation so the blame didn't seem to solely fall on Janet just choosing not to, I think that might have hit a little bit more. Um, but I just thought that Jonathan was so good. Like, to me, this is like a Kang I could never have dreamed of getting. Like Kirsty said, I think a lot of us thought it would be kind of this two-dimensional flat villain, though I don't think Jonathan could play that if he tried. <laughs> and I, I kind of like... I liked also the implication of like, he 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 could be he who remains, he's probably not, but there's definitely a world where you could see that they went on the same path because the kind of things he's talking about sound similar, but his motivations were different. I thought it was delightful. I love, I love Kang. That's like one of my favorite weird MCU villains. So to see him kind of on this pedestal, but with such a brilliant actor and performer behind him who understands all the different iterations and then to see that council of Kangs and they just plucked that just directly from the comic book pages. And then obviously to see him as Victor timely and kind of the excitement of the, I, I would say that that to me implies that Victor, AK, like Victor Kang will be a part of Loki season two, which to me is just so exciting because I know a lot of us really wanted Jonathan to be in Loki season two. So I'm hoping that's what that means. Kirsten and Rosie, you both said that like it was, First of all, I agree with everything you said. This is going to, I'm going to set the record for agreeing with people the most. <laughs> um, we also said that like it, it wasn't a 2D performance. And I kind of agree, but also disagree in the sense of like it's a remarkably 3D performance. There's so much going on there. Like, kind of the whole point of King is that he's experienced everything, mm. he knows everything. Like, there's nothing that you can do that he won't anticipate. He is like the Ubermensch, he experienced every timeline. Um, but I think in an interesting way, instead of, it makes him 3D, but it also kind of flattens him out in a fascinating way. Like, Rosa, you mentioned he, he kind of sticks to his conquering roots. I just like that kind of almost the subtle commentary of like, what do you do when you know everything, when you've experienced everything, and there are no more surprises left in the multiverse? It's like, well, guess I'll just keep winning. <laughs> I'll just keep winning and winning and winning until I just can't win anymore. Uh, and I love that as mm -hmm. a villain motivation because he pays slight lip service to a kind of like Thanos-esque motivation of like, well, somebody's got to prune these timelines. But I don't think anybody really buys that. It's just he's bored by eternity and he's going to conquer over and over again. Um, and I thought that came through marvelously mm -hmm. with uh, Johnny Major's performance there. Um, he's my favorite part of this movie, and I imagine he's going to be my favorite part of the MCU going forward. And folks, please, we encourage you to submit your Janet and Kang shipper tags uh, yeah. here in the comments. <laughs> uh, wherever you are watching or listening right now, please join the Kang Bang and let us know your <laughs> Janet and uh your your Janet and Kang shipper names. We want them. Maybe we'll talk about the best ones, or at least the printable ones next week. Uh, yes, so. and any and any fan art, just send that directly to me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on a decidedly less sexy note, let's talk about Modoc. One of the things that struck me about the uh, kind of overcooked critical response to this movie 
was I found there to be a fair amount of pearl clutching about like, oh God, look what they did to Modoc. And it's like, I know you never cared about Modoc. <laughs> <Shut up. laughs> like, like, shut up. You it's never, so true. Like, it's so true. However, if Rosie Knight has a complaint about how Modoc was depicted in this movie, this is a voice that I will listen to. So, Rosie, let's 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 let, unburden yourself about Modoc for us. Modoc, Modoc is a very weird character, as we know. That's like the thing that I care about. I I think Modoc is a very scary character. I think the the notion of Modoc being this kind of like tortured creature that Aim uh, kind of experimented on and then it went wrong and he wanted the vengeance i just think it's a really interesting cool villain and i also i understand also the comedic uh reading of it i do kind of think that that comedic reading is uh is quite based in ableism which i'd always kind of thought like a little bit of in you know because it's like oh he looks weird he's got a big head he's got tiny arms but i did actually feel like they lent into that a bit like which i wasn't totally feeling And, and also you know what i i don't love the current MCU trend of like, well, actually this has been a trend since like Captain Marvel, but I don't necessarily always gel with the the choice to like take a villain and basically make them like a comedy relief. Cause I just think some of these characters are really cool. Modoc's scary. Modoc has like a scary, cool, monstrous vibe and a an anger that and a righteous fury that I think is really cool. And he has like a cool cosmic beam. I did think visually the way they brought to life the cosmic beam, like the saws, I thought that was very cool. But like the whole like he's my friend Darren, like like oh it's Darren. That felt like um that felt actually like the most Rick and Morty robot chicken joke that would kind of you'd see in that space and you'd be like oh that's really funny because that's basically Modog but they're calling him Darren. That was the bit for me where I was like eh. you know what we could see different versions of him. It's a multiverse, and I actually I have to say I actually thought the idea of making him Darren Cross I thought that was really interesting. And I thought the idea of Scott basically when he shrunk him down to subatomic size at the end of Ant-Man crushing him, which was something I'd like, as soon as they said it was Darren Cross, I was like, oh, obviously that's what happened. I thought that was a cool idea. I thought the idea that Kang was the one who had kind of tortured him and turned him into the, you know, mechanical organism designed only for killing Modoc. I'm glad they made that joke because a lot of us have talked about it. I thought that was all really cool. I just didn't love like, the comedic stylings of like don't be a dick it, it wasn't for me but you know what scott uh cassie and scott kind of sold it at the end with the bits i i did get a laugh when he was like at least i died in avenger you know and they were kind of like sure they, i got a laugh yeah. from it but but to me it's like i i would have liked to see a scarier modok and i think that's a villain you could have around for a long time but I do agree with you that people who were like, look what you did to Modoc. My co-host of Vision, Jason, pointed out really well, like, it's an extremely Modoc thing to just, like, be in a comic for two pages and then get, like, beaten. So actually, it's actually very comic book <laughs> accurate representation of Modoc in that way. <laughs> I have no feelings for Modoc, uh, really. I, I'm, I've read a lot of Modoc, and I watched the TV show that Hulu did, and I enjoyed it. Um, but I don't mind if he's comical or serious in theory. Like I'll take all Modocs. I, I like that. A multiverse of Modocs. <laughs> I'm just I, I love them all. I thought this one was okay. Um, I wasn't sure about the CG on uh, Corey Stoll's face. 
and how they did it. It just looked really odd, but um, I just went along with it, to be honest. And um, I did enjoy his his dying words. They were they were pretty fun. I like the Modoc bot. Yeah, I, I did get a good laugh out of that. I was like, that's not something I ever thought we'd see on screen. <laughs> Somehow, like a week on that the Modoc stuff is still going strong on, on social media, like the jokes about Modoc. So. I think a lot of people as well, if they didn't, if they weren't that familiar with Modoc, I've seen a lot of pieces about how people loved that and they thought that was like the best part of the movie. So right. I love that it kind of has this huge spectrum of responses. He's Modop or Modob, mechanism <laughs> designed only for butt. <laughs> I saw um, one with um, uh, Vin Diesel's face and it was like designed oh. for family. Oh, that's good. Oh my Rudolph. God. I love that. <laughs> he never, I, I'm glad you said that he's supposed to be like unnerving and scary because he never stopped looking horrifying to me. <laughs> like, I never got used to it. It was a jump scare every time. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the one thing that I feel like we're missing here, and just refresh me really quick. Darren Cross in the first Ant-Man movie and that was a gruesome demise, by the way. And so, as, as, as you said, Rosie, it made perfect sense for him to end up like this in this movie. But, like, wasn't really a particularly strong villain. Um, but Darren Cross, there was no connection to or mention of advanced idea mechanics in that first Ant-Man movie, was there? No, he, he, he worked for Hamp Pym. Okay, like it wasn't like he was secretly being corrupted by AIM or whoever, because it would have been nice to find a way to bring AIM back to the MCU. I know folks don't really think that they were particularly well served in Iron Man 3. And I say this as somebody who loves Iron Man 3, I can kind of get behind that. So I do feel like there was a little something lost here. And also just like, not really a Corey Stoll guy. Like I just never, never really got it. It would be nice to see them do a version of AIM. I know like for WandaVision, that was something a lot of us were really excited about because they had like the beekeepers and the hexagons. And, you know, though now we've seen those hexagons in every MCU movie from the first to the last. Like they love a fucking hexagon. Sorry, they love a hexagon. <laughs> uh, they love a hexagon. But like, yeah, no, I, I would love to see a version of AIM. I think we're in a reconsideration time of the MCU. You can introduce something, you can bring it back. Kevin Feige seems to love taking things out of the Loeb era TV and bringing it in like the dark hold, you know? So um, I'm excited to see when they do decide to do it, but who knows when that will be? Cause I thought MODOK would be a good place to at least hint at it, but no, it was, it was Kang Doc. The jokes work? Like did the jokes actually land in this one for you? No. I, I think the most telling thing about this movie is the, the opening 10 minutes and the last 10 minutes when you're in like San Francisco, that's when it feels most like an Ant-Man movie. And those jokes were like hitting so hard. Like the stuff with Scott in the, the coffee shop and the stuff where he's doing the book reading. That's where you really feel like you're in the Ant-Man world. And the biggest, best moment of the whole movie for me is that moment at the end when Scott has that existential realization of like, oh, didn't Kang, like, did I kill Kang? And didn't Kang say that I he needed to get out because something really bad was coming? That to me landed so well and felt so scary. And then they played it off really well in a way that felt very realistic to people who have anxiety, which is like, you're like, no, 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 that could never happen. Like, I'm okay, just live in the moment, enjoy this cake. Th those, I do feel like those 10 minutes at either end, those jokes landed better than like anything else. 
in the movie. And I think that kind of speaks to the power of the original Ant-Man format, which is that more ground level, like human comedy. I loved it, Murdoch's you know, I, at least I did an Avenger. Like I laughed at a little yeah, bit. Yeah, that was. I thought that was. I thought that was a, a good laugh. Yeah, my my gut laugh, the one where I just I cannot control my laughter, was when Scott sort of stares off into space for a bit and goes, "A lot has happened today." It's just <laughs> my line, but that's the one that got me. That's such a good Ant Man line. Like yeah. that's. I also, you know what? Of all the new characters who like, I was re- so something that's weird about this movie that I've kind of talked quite a lot about on the podcast before and after, but like it basically is just taken from all these weird 80s Hulk comics, uh, which were like set in the microverse. So there was this character, Gentora, who is this, who was the freedom fighter character. And that whole storyline in the microverse is like Hulk goes there, gets shrunk down and has to help these freedom fighters against the despot. So it's very similar. And Gentora is directly connected to that because her aunt Jarella was like Hulk's love interest. I really wanted to see those characters get expanded on and those jokes land more like, I was hoping when they cast William Jackson Harper, I was like, shit, that's like Nathaniel Richards. Like, that's going to be like Reed's dad. Like, I wanted him. He's so brilliant that to me, like Quaz, those things didn't really hit. But I will say the Veb, Veb's whole jokes, which which kind of started off and I was a bit like, oh, but when it kind of paid off that he got holes and then he could have like this giant mouth, I did get a good chuckle out of that like that was the one kind of really wacky one that landed but I I feel like there's probably a version of this movie where we got a lot more time with those freedom fighters and it was probably in the first two acts where you were really switching around between all the all the different places um the only thing I found it it was not particularly funny for an Ant-Man movie that was written by a comedy writer um but I I did love the little the little goo guy who just wanted his yeah. Veb he's easy he, he was and I like David Dasmolchin a lot so I'm like whenever he gets a nice role like that and his kind of voice was a good fit I also don't think the other thing I think it misses is like think about the greatest Ant Man moments it's it's all about the pin particles it's about Hank heisting his whole building is just like a, a a suitcase in Ant-Man 2, you know, it's uh, the Pez fight or the Thomas the Tank Engine fight. And I think once you get to like subatomic levels, one, the super science becomes a little bit murky. How small can you really go once you're subatomic? But also like you miss out on a lot of the fun of like, nobody's got just a little car in their pocket. We only really get that at the beginning when Cassie shrinks the the uh, cop car down, you know? But I would have loved to see like somebody just had something from the normal size world in their pocket that they could like scare people in the quantum realm with. And it's just something like a toothpick or something really mundane. You know, I feel like that's part of what makes those Ant-Man movies so fun. And I think that was another thing that was kind of missing in that space. Yeah, I did miss the kaiju elements of the first two. You know, that's one of the things that I love about those two movies. So, well, yeah, I did miss it. The ending is something that felt a little bit, a little bit off. And I will say that I've had sources telling me for months that this was a darker, more serious Ant-Man movie. I had someone tell me this movie was like a gut punch at one point. There is no gut punch in this movie. And that ending especially felt very kind of thrown together. Like something different was supposed to happen with that portal at the end. And I don't know what it was, but we can all speculate on it. But 
there's another ending to this movie. Yeah. So so they were shooting the pickups that I saw when I fixed my phone. They were shooting those like six weeks ago. Yes. Holy I'm, crap. I'm telling you, like this was like three weeks before, four weeks before the movie was meant to come out. Yeah. Oh wow. And that's I literally I'm getting my phone fixed. I'm out on the main street and there's just like a San there's a San Francisco bus. And I was like, they were shooting here like a year ago. So I'm like, oh. And I'm walking down the street, there's the trolley, there's everything, and there's just Paul Rudd going in and out. So I I had heard, and again, this is just pure something somebody told me. I'd heard that originally Scott and Hope didn't get out of the quantum realm. That yeah. was the that was like the rumor that yeah. I heard. And it was kind of this big dark moment. Though honestly, it could have still been spun in a positive way, I think, because like the quantum realm is now free and they could be a part of building it. Um but yeah, that was kind of the general gist of of what I because when they were doing the pickups, I was like, what could this be for? And then I saw the end of the movie and I was thinking, like, okay, well, I like I loved that kind of like maybe something went wrong when Scott came back. I, I liked the vagueness there. I loved that joke about like, did he really do the right thing? But it did feel like when Cassie just turned up immediately afterwards and was like, Hey, I got you guys out. I was like, mm. why did the portal close at all then? Like it did, right. there's definitely a feeling, and that would align with what you'd heard about like gut punches. Yeah, either Scott and Hope weren't supposed to come back, or Hank was supposed to die, or like there was definitely something else that was on the page at some point and was probably filmed. And uh, we'll never know, like, I'm sure they will never actually tell us. That will not but be I on the DVD convinced. extras. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i am convinced that there was a much darker ending for this movie and i really really want to know what it was and more importantly i want to know why they felt the need to change it like it getting it tested badly or something like i don't know because i'm just like i i don't know why you would change it the mcu's never been scared of doing sad stuff or dark stuff it's often what hits people the hardest and makes people most committed to the to the characters yeah but even without that even without like kind of our you know, I mean, look, you have real knowledge of this. You watched those scenes getting shot six weeks ago. But even like aside from our industry, whatever nonsense, like I feel like even the like a layperson could tell watching that ending that something was was fixed there. Something was changed. Like it just doesn't it just doesn't sit right, does it? I think I'm as close to a lay person as we have on this stream. And I absolutely picked that up. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this was very clearly reshot. Something is off here. But I'm I'm a bit conflicted about it because I think the dark ending where Kang gets out or Scott and, and uh, Hope are stuck in the quantum realm, I think that makes for a better introduction to phase five. I think that mm. gives the franchise a bit of momentum. But I'm kind of with Rosie as well that I think this like weird unsettling anxious ending works better for the film itself um that ending where where scott is like did i did i leave the quantum realm uh stove on no like that (laughs) that is a stronger ending to the film um and it does leave you with a sense of unease that really compounds once you get to the post-credit scenes i don't know what the right move was here but it is incredibly apparent that this has two endings it certainly has two post-credit scenes. Um, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> nice segue. <laughs> so Alec is not 
a Marvel Comics scholar, despite Alex's like, vast knowledge of the MCU and related properties and unbelievable pop culture literacy, I've watched Alex's eyes glaze over many a time on this show when Kirsty and I are, are out in the weeds with, with comics lore. And there is no character in Marvel Comics that will take you further out into the weeds <laughs> with like with like the possible exception of like cable or strife for somebody. And I'm not even sure there than Kang. And you got an adult dose of Kang yeah. in those post-credit scenes. <laughs> I promise I'm not just trying to sound cool to the comic folks. Um or like, you know, more mature than I really am. <laughs> I, Kang makes perfect sense to me. And I think it's because this no. movie was written by, <laughs> like, like Marvel is literally just Rick and Morty now. Like, Kang is literally just Rick Sanchez. Nothing could possibly make more sense to me in the world than, like, the route that this character is on. Um, it's funny when Rosie mentioned that she and Jason were talking about how, like, you know, Marvel begots Rick and Morty, which begot Marvel. Um, the Citadel of Kang's and the Citadel of Rick's is just like a one-to-one. Like mm-hmm. the post-credit scene makes absolute pitch-perfect sense to me. Yeah, I actually think that's one of the most interesting things about Kang, who in the comics is like, like Mike said, like very in the weeds character, like Victor Timely. That's a character that probably five people had ever talked about before the end of this movie. But if you love science fiction storytelling, if you enjoy things like Rick and Morty, if you've read books about that mention the multiverse, now I think we are literate enough as a pop culture viewing audience that I think Kang actually probably makes quite a lot of sense to a lot of people, whether it's just thanks to Rick and Morty or whether it's thanks to other stories that have introduced the idea of kind of like time traveling, multiverse hopping villains. You know, it's it's very, it's very interesting, but I'm like, if that is the greatest legacy of Rick and Morty is that it introduced people to these like really complex in the weeds comics lore that can now become accessible. I'm like, that's wonderful. Like, thank you for that. Cause that makes me very happy that someone who's never seen those comics or those pages and who can kind of get a bit like overwhelmed understandably by 80 plus years of comic book lore can just watch that ending and go, Oh yeah, I know what's going on. That's really cool. I am curious, Rosie, I would like your thoughts on this because in that first in that first scene we obviously have Ramatut yeah right we have Immortus yeah. right but the third kang is like not really the scarlet centurion he's not nathaniel richards like who yeah, I, who is that who is that third kang i think this is one of the most interesting questions of the movie because immortus they literally just painted jonathan major's face blue and put him in the costume. Like, Ramatat, he has, like, a Party City-style, like, Sphinx costume. I love that. Like, that, to me, is, like, that is Kang. Like, they did that right. So it kind of blows my mind that they would choose to redesign the Scarlet Centurion costume if that is who he's supposed to be, because the Scarlet Centurion has, like, one of the most iconic, like, sexy, like, male costumes in comics. He has a costume that would usually be designed by for a woman in comics, where he has, like, nothing on his chest, and it's, like, a sexy red, like, triangle. So it feels to me that that would have been very in the tone of what they were going for by doing the comics accurate ones. I think it could be a redesign, because... 
the Scarlet Centurion costume is like ridiculous, like legit. Go Google it. It's so good. It's so funny. You've probably already seen it in like a meme or like a tweet. But the other options I think is like it could be like Kid Immortus or it could be uh, like Iron Lad. I think those are less likely because I do think they'll probably do a version of Iron Lad when we do Young Avengers because it's such a key part and such a great turnaround from the original Young Avengers stories. So yeah, I think it's up in the air, but I think probably the most realistic is that it's like a, a redesign of the Scarlet Centurion, though I will be sad to lose that. I want to see Jonathan Majors in the original Scarlet Centurion costume. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. Nobody wants to see Jonathan Majors with his shirt off. Come on. I know. Like, give the people what they want. Full clothes. Dude, like, time. go to the gym. Like, <laughs> eat a salad, bro. At the come end on, when like... he's, like, half of his suit's, like, gone, I was like, yeah. they knew what the people want. They, like, they know. <laughs> His forearm is the star of this movie. Just yes. his right forearm. <laughs> Truly, it's bringing back the conversation of best arms in movies. Like, he's up there for the best movie arms. Definitely best MCU arms. Probably alongside, like, Chris Evans' bicep curling a helicopter for his boyfriend. It's one of my all-time favorite <laughs> MCU moments. <laughs> I loved that second post credit scene. I will be honest, I think it was my favorite part of the movie. <laughs> and usually I find these uh, post-credit scenes a little bit cringe, especially in phase four. They haven't been fantastic. But just seeing, um, you know, Tom Hiddleston is Loki. You know, he's been Loki since he took the stage at Comic-Con and performed as Loki. He knows what he's doing. He lives that character. He has embraced that he may always be remembered as Loki. Like, he's completely gone for it. And when it cuts to his face... You can, he's doing so much with his eyes. I was more scared of Kang looking at the terror in Loki's eyes, seeing him again and remembering his encounter with he who remains than I was scared of Kang in the whole of Quantumania. I just think he's phenomenal. And I love that delightful relationship that he has with Mobius. Like Owen Wilson's turning around saying like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's kind of cute. He's funny, you know, whatever. And, and Loki's just, just horror on his face. I, th- I missed that relationship. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was genuinely like, oh, I'm so excited for the second season of Loki, which I don't think, I don't think I realized I was until I saw this. I've never been more convinced that Loki is the only live action show with a second season because that show is the connective tissue between phase four, five, and six. I was going to say, actually, I think you touched on something. One, I totally agree. Like, Tom Hiddleston's so good. And that moment tells us so much about Mobius, who doesn't know who Kang is, and the charm of Kang, and also how terrifying Kang is to people who know what he can do. But also, if we're talking about what this movie means as a phase five movie, one, Kevin Feige decided it was a phase five movie. But two, I think the biggest differentiation here is there is a movie with a direct connection between the TV shows and the movie. That's a TV character in the movies, in the final, saying these two things are directly connected. And I think whatever critical consensus there is, I think that will just make people more excited to see how these worlds are connected. And it makes me excited because I my gut says that maybe there's a version where Victor Timely is part of that team with Mobius and Loki in season two, you know? Um, but we'll see, because I've also read the comics, so I know that version of Victor Timely. So I think there's some very interesting implications uh, from this movie. 
but yeah, I, I just thought that I thought that was so good. I love the Council of Kangs one, the, the Citadel of Kangs. I thought it was like totally over the top and just what you needed it to be, like the craziest, wildest thousand Kangs. But I loved how much they sold Victor Timely. I thought the costuming was brilliant. I thought the time I thought it looked like a cool era for Loki and Mobius to be in. I thought Jonathan sold it, of course. And and yeah, those moments like that final shot of Loki is like tears in his eyes. It's right. just so good. I never want this episode of Marvel Standom to end because you guys are <laughs> so relentlessly correct about everything. And you're like, I'm just getting so charged up by it. Um, you're so right about Hiddleston as Loki. Like that's the best acting moment in the whole film is when just like the Ooh. color drains from his face. Um, I just want to shout out in the previous post credit scene real quick. I think in a maybe tied with that Hiddleston moment for me, my favorite moment in the whole film is um, at the Citadel of Kangs when they pan out to the big crowd. Uh, there's one Kang that is just going absolutely buck. Yeah, he's going like mad. <laughs> he's like slapping his buddy next to him and screaming. <laughs> it is such a cool moment because like for the whole movie, Kang is so restrained and badass. And then you get this moment of seeing like maybe a younger Kang who's like still hyped up by the multiverse, mm -hmm. like not so jaded by it yet. And he's just like animalistically excited about the whole thing. And Majors is able to do both so well, even though that's just a split second. Um, yeah, these post credit scenes are incredible. They're the best part of the movie by far. I rewatched Loki for the first time since, since the show wrapped. And you know what? The show was really good. Like, <laughs> like, you know, it has some pacing issues after episode three, you know, but it's still really good and really clever, you know, like there's still elements of it that don't like fully land for me, uh, but it's really, really good. And I am extremely hyped that, as Kirsty put it, this is this is going to be the connective tissue between like between these phases now like i think we i think we're pretty much guaranteed a third season of loki as well i would not be the least bit surprised if we're going to get like three seasons kind of one for you know phase four five and six and and that is all kind of the thing and i'm sure that'll probably be the end of tom hiddleston's time um but these both of these post-credit scenes but especially the second one they felt like they mattered and that has not really been the case with a lot of the recent post credit stuff. It, you know, there's been a lot of introduction, like stunt casting introductions of characters who like, we're never going to see again. Like we are never going to see Harry Styles as heroes, folks. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. <laughs> like How dare you? he's never coming back. Like, I'm sorry, it's not happening. You know, I don't know if we're ever going to properly get, Charlize Theron as as Clea, which is a shame because that would be awesome, you know. These felt like they mattered, and it was it was kind of a nice change of pace to have something tie so directly back into something. MCU haters like to talk about this stuff as like, oh, everything's a commercial for the next thing, but like that is baked into the formula now, and like in this case, it makes perfect sense, and it's like, oh yeah, like great, bring it on. First of all, we are going to see Harry Styles as Eros again <laughs> in Eternals 2. Which, <laughs> which will, will be coming out. Yes. And it will be just as good, if not better, than the first one. But I don't I believe how it will be better. <laughs> I, I, I believe we will get Eternals 2. I don't think Star Fox is going to be in it. Like, 
I I will be very interested to see. I think there's a different version of Harry Styles' career where his indie movie kind of stuff had been a bit better received, where we might not have seen it. But I actually think his agent's probably like, bro, put that suit back on. Yes. Get that MCU <laughs> check. Like, and then you can go on the tour. But I mean, I... I think with Adam Warlock coming into the MCU in Guardians, I think having somebody as Eros is really smart. Uh, I, my feeling of the character we probably won't, the casting we probably won't get again is like, I don't know if that Brett Goldstein Hercules casting is going to stick. Um, that Because Hercules is such a huge part of the kind of the, what we're probably going to see, like what I like to call the Jacket Avengers era. Like I think that we'll we'll probably see Hercules in a real kind of capacity so i don't know if they're going to cg brett goldstein or if brett goldstein wants to get marvel hercules hunky uh but yeah i totally agree i think these two feel like they matter and they feel like they're not just trying to get people to like do a tweet after the screening and say hey this person's in it like nobody from variety was going to be like guys jonathan major's <laughs> playing victor timely at the end <laughs> like, like that was never gonna happen you know and i think in that way you're you're really right about it not being a stunt casting somebody in the uh lee was just talking about how like this feels like the shang chi post-credit scene so i want to ask you guys something because this is something i do think mcu struggles with why do they keep making artifacts that all look the same like the ten rings from shang chi the thing that fastos made and now kang's core those all looked like they were inevitably going to be revealed to be the same thing but they this was not connected to any of them so I just think that's kind of really interesting and I want to know where they're going with that. <laughs> I, I have no answer for that, but I, I do just want to, I want to slightly walk back what I said about Harry Styles as, as arrows slash. Ah, we we won. We won. <laughs> no, no, because I still don't think he's coming back, but I just want to make it clear before I get murdered by Harry Styles fans I am not saying that because I'm a dude who doesn't like pop music and doesn't like Harry Styles. I think Harry Styles is a tremendous generational talent. Okay. <laughs> like, and I think it would be, be very cool if he was part of the cosmic MCU. I just don't think it's going to happen. Like that's, that's all. Like, I just, just want to clarify that statement before I get dragged. From it's not this a prediction. Of the internet it's, it's a prediction, that. not a wish. Yes, yes. It's a, it's a, thank it, you, thank you. Yeah, it's a promise. Eros <laughs> will be back. And so will Moon Knight. They will both be back. Maybe not Oscar Pip Isaac's never putting that suit on again. <laughs> Oscar Isaac is never actually, putting that suit on again, but he may do a voiceover for a CG suit. Yes. Yeah, Just don't fair. let him do the accent. Yeah. <laughs> don't let him do the accent. <laughs> Lee has a bold prediction. Bold, bold, as, as Lee puts it. Harry Styles will appear in the Marvels, which would be interesting. You know, and that is a it. cosmic flavored MCU project. I could see it. I think that I think that movie is going to be um, heavily committed to like the Cree scroll of it all and the Nova, the Nova Corpse, etc. But I'd like to see it. I like I like cosmic stuff. It's coming out after uh, you know Guardians. It looks like you know they just pushed it back after Ant Man was released, which I don't know if that's connected. It feel, feels connected to me. Um, so we'll see how that affects it. Maybe it was a bit volume heavy. Maybe there wasn't much uh, real world stuff in there. So yeah, it would be interesting. But he could turn up there. It would make sense. Cosmic begets cosmic, you know? Like those are weird cosmic characters. So it's a it's a wild time to be an MCU fan. 
Okay, Rosie had a question for you all, and I know that we have to wrap this up because we're running over because <laughs> we've had such a good time. Um, but I have a question. Is the fact that Jonathan Majors confirmed that Kang is a Nexus being the key to how all this works out? Because what we've been told, right, is that there's infinite wonders, but only one Scarlet Witch. And now we're being told that the, uh, the other Nexus being Kang there's infinite Kangs, right? So is the fact that there's only one Scarlet Witch the key to how this ends? Probably, like yes. And it's very interesting that Jonathan said that because in the comics, Immortus becomes obsessed with Scarlet Witch because he discovers she's a Nexus being and then he wants right. to like marry her. So I think even in the comics, Kang's always been obsessed with Wanda's power and what she means so even if in the mcu or in in jonathan's canon he is a nexus being wonder is more likely the stronger of the two and i think that for a lot of people who were disappointed by multiverse of madness i loved it i felt like her arc was actually incredibly in line with wonder's stories in the comics this, she's often kind of having a tough time doing some messed up stuff and then coming back um i loved it but i think that could be a really wonderful payoff for people to get to see her have a heroic arc as like a true Scarlet Witch. And yeah, I find it, I, I find that very interesting because her being a Nexus being is what makes Kang so obsessed with her. And we haven't had any kind of confirmation of Nexus beings in the MCU yet, apart from hints in WandaVision with the word Nexus. So that's very interesting. Last thing, is the MCU at this point critic proof? Because this was certainly the most lukewarm critical reception I can remember for a Marvel movie, but it sure didn't hurt the box office. Um, and here we are a week later finding new things to, to, to like about a movie that we've all kind of admitted is not really that great. <laughs> so like, you know, it, are, are we at the point where this has kind of become critic proof in a way that maybe even the bond franchise isn't? Yes. Whether yeah. that's a good thing I don't think so, because ultimately, a lot of the time we learn our biggest lessons and we come back stronger when we have failed with consequences. <laughs> and I'm not yeah. sure this is a good lesson for the MCU to learn. I would agree. I would also say I think it's like, I think it is more about the characters than necessarily the franchise. I wouldn't say all superhero movies are critic proof because we know that's not true. But I think a lot about like Venom and Venom Let There Be Carnage and, and Venom Let There Be Carnage specifically had terrible reviews and made so much money in a kind of still COVID time. I think that when characters have a nostalgia factor and, and a recognizability and people care about them, whether that's Venom from the comics or whether it's Ant-Man, who obviously wouldn't have had that before the MCU, I think it's the characters and these kind of like films that are not focused on star power or necessarily quality when it comes to narrative, but are focused on people being able to see characters they like. That's where I think it starts to become critic proof is kind of at that nexus. Is it good for <laughs> Marvel Studios to feel emboldened? by no. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. it's a mixed it's bag. <laughs> yeah. I think it, it's critic proof as long as they're kind of like the only game in town as well. I mean, like I know DC is getting its act together, point. but yeah. the, the yes. movie landscape has changed a lot. Like, you know, Marvel movies are kind of just like almost mandatory now. <laughs> like if it's like a Friday night and you're a kid and you're going out to see a big action movie, it's going to be a Marvel movie. Um, 
People are invested, say, right? They're invested yeah. no matter what. I will say, uh, back when I was a, a lot more in love with Ant-Man uh, and, the, and the Wasp 3 Quantumania, um, that long-ass title, I, I think when I saw this movie, I was reacting to it so favorably, in part because I had just read that Kevin Feige EW interview where he basically said everything I ever wanted to hear out of um, you know the studio chief of Marvel, and which was like kind of acknowledging mistakes of like, we did too much. We're going to pare back a bit. Uh, we want these to, to hit harder and last longer. Um, and it just made me feel good about the future of the franchise to the point where I saw Ant-Man. I'm like, this is it. They're doing it. Like um, Two hours long. Yeah. It's quick. It's, it's it has like a clear middle, the beginning, middle and end. The post-credit scenes are perfect. Um, so I feel like it's just going to be a battle between Kevin Feige and literally every other person at Disney for the foreseeable future. I think at least one person there gets it. And then probably the, the writers that they bring aboard get it that like, we can't just have this reduced to content. Like it has to be something worthwhile and good, or we're going to lose the cinematic mandate of heaven versus kind of the more corporate people who are just, you know, happy to always see the number go up until one day it doesn't. Well, you know what? I think that is a perfect place to end this episode. Just want to thank Rosie Knight once again for joining us. Rosie, is there anything you want to plug before we say goodbye today? Um, you can listen to my podcast with uh, Jason Concepcion uh, at Crooked Media called X-Ray Vision, where we, t- we have a double Ant-Man episode last week. We're covering The Last of Us every week. I wrote the cover story for Den of Geek that you saw Zachary Levy talking about before this. So go and get a copy of that. Those magazines are really beautifully put together and a lot of amazing people work really hard on them. And yeah, and I have a website, just rosynight.com if you want to see my other writing or buy some comics and stuff like that. And yeah, and thank you for having me. I, I love coming on this show. And it was always fun, like Alec was saying, to talk when you just all agree because you just keep getting hyped up. And it's <laughs> extra fun for me when it's about what is essentially like a B-movie. It's not by budget, but you know, like it's nice to have people just get excited about something because it's fun, not because it's necessarily like critically lauded or, or extremely beautifully made. You know, it's kind of fun to just nerd out. Rosie, I have to issue a quick correction. It's not a B movie; it's an ant movie. Hey! Ah, boo! (laughs) Boo! Ah, incredible! Yes. Hang your head, sir. Anyway. He, he's disappeared. He's gone to subatomic size out of shame. <laughs> wait, 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 Mike. Do you want yes? to tell everyone what we're doing next week? Next week, we are revisiting uh, something that is not exactly a Marvel live-action classic. Uh, we are using uh, Kirsty's There Are No Guilty Pleasures philosophy. We will be watching and discussing. Oh, look how interested Rosie is! <laughs> uh, the tr- uh, the the Incredible Hulk returns. Uh, the first yes! ever live action Thor. Uh, okay, please. If you're doing more of these, let me know. I own all those movies on DVD. I have Doctor Strange. I have all the Captain America movies. Like this is one of my passions. So I cannot wait to tune in for them. that. that. People Doctor forget Strange it's the movie. MCU. Be- it's the MCU before the MCU, especially the TV yeah. stuff. Yeah, I love it. And that Doctor Strange TV movie is legitimately great. Like, it's is so, so wild. weird. Yeah. Um, and best I representation watched... of Wong at the time as well. 
He's very cool in that movie. He's very suave. It totally goes against what we see in the comics. This is going to be fun. I don't know how Alec is going to respond to this one. I have not even watched the the, the Incredible Hulk Returns in 20 years. So, <laughs> oh, you're in for um, a treat. It's an, I, I just remember it's a, it's a very unique portrayal of Thor. You know, generally speaking, we've talked about this stuff on the show before where I'm a big booster of the original Incredible Hulk TV series, which folks need to understand was just a massive, massive hit. The Incredible Hulk Returns, slightly different story, but an important piece of Marvel history regardless. That's what we're doing next week. Following week, we will be back once again because we've been pretty good about staying weekly, folks, right? Um, for the first installment of the Marvel Standom Book Club and Kirsty, what are we reading for that one? I think it's Modox 11, and Al Kennedy will be joining us from oh, cool. Explain the X-Men and House of Astonish and Shelfdoff Presents Secret Wars. He's been on the show before, and he's coming back for the book club. None of us have read Modox 11, but even Alec is going to read it. Even Alec. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to talk about it. And hopefully it will be a good run of comics. <laughs> we can't get enough of Modoc, so we're, we're just doing more Modoc. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget, folks, please follow us on uh, YouTube and Twitch. Um, if you are listening to this or watching it afterwards, we do these live. So head to Denegeek US on YouTube and twitch.tv slash TV to catch us live. Talk to us in the comments. Do everything that, you know, helps us keep the lights on around here. We are also at Marvel Standom on Twitter and Instagram. Drop us a line. Let us know your burning questions, what you want us to cover in upcoming episodes. Got some suggestions for the book club? That's where you want to put them. Want us to revisit some weird old Marvel live action stuff? That's the place to make your suggestions. Don't forget, we also have a DC show, so check out DC Standom when you can on all major podcast platforms. And of course, our amazing paranormal show, Talking Strange, hosted by the brilliant Aaron Sagers. If you came in late today, you'll be able to watch this entire episode on denigeek.com or at our YouTube home, Denigeek US. Don't forget, check out past episodes there and also wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, as usual. Uh, to Andrew Halley, the best producer in the multiverse who made our intro extra small and actually scared the hell out of me today. Special shout out, Michael R. He makes the podcast version of this show all it can be. And once again, please welcome back Lee Parham, who made his triumphant return to Den of Geek this week. He'll be back running our TikTok soon enough. So make sure you give those a follow. Say hello to Lee. Lee kept you all in line in the comments today and did a great job. We're just happy to have him back. But Thank you all for watching, listening, following, subscribing. You know the drill. This has been Marvel Standom on the Denny Denny Network. Until next time, remember, folks, we stand together. <laughs>